Well, this morning, why don't you take your Bibles and open them to Mark chapter 12. We're back in Mark chapter 12. And as you're turning, I want to tell you a little bit about the life of John Wesley. I've studied the life, the conversion, the impact of John Wesley before. I think I've, I think I've mentioned him in a sermon before. But this week, while reading R. Kent Hughes' commentary on Mark 12, I was fascinated to learn how our passage today factored into Wesley's famous conversion. John Wesley was born in 1703, the 15th child in his family. He studied at Oxford and then was an ordained priest in the Church of England for a couple years to help his father out. Then he went back to Oxford where he was joined by Charles Wesley, his brother, and George Whitfield, two other very famous 18th century preachers. And together at Oxford, they started what came to be known as the Holy Club. And together they met for prayer and Bible study, discussion, devotion. They studied the Greek New Testament together. They spent an hour of prayer uh, per day together. They took communion every week. They fasted twice a week. They regularly visited those who were sick or in jail. They were considered extreme in their Christian pursuits. Only during this time, for John Wesley, he wasn't saved. This whole time, he he actually wasn't converted. He, He thought he was. He claimed to be, but he wasn't a true believer during this time, by his own admission. In 1735, he was invited to be a missionary to the American Indians in Georgia. And this endeavor was a complete failure. Wesley Wesley was a wreck, a physical and spiritual wreck. He almost died of disease. He just abandoned the mission field, went back home to England. And that's when he sought out the Moravians. See, on his voyage to America, there was this terrible storm at sea, and the mast on their ship broke off, and all the Englishmen were panicking. But the Moravians, this group of Moravians, they were just sitting there singing hymns and praying. And that really struck Wesley. He knew they had, they had something real. They had a genuine, real faith in contrast to his own. Upon returning from the mission field, he wrestled with the insincerity of his own Christianity. And he wrote later in his journal, quote, I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who shall convert me? End quote. But things changed for Wesley, though, on May 24th, 1738. That morning, he haphazardly opened his Bible and came to this verse from Mark 12, verse 34, where Jesus says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. That really struck him and stuck with him. And later that same night, he unwillingly attended a meeting with his Moravians, and one of them was reading the preface to Martin Luther's commentary on on the epistle to the Romans. And upon hearing these words, he went from being not far from, from the kingdom to in the kingdom. And Wesley later recalled of that meeting in his journal saying, quote, about a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust Christ, Christ alone for my salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death, end quote. And from that moment on, what Wesley really was changed. It might be a little shocking to hear this. Here's a guy who beforehand, he seemed so devout. I mean, he read the Bible. He prayed for hours. He fasted twice a week. He was literally in a holy club. He was a scholar. He knew Greek. He was a clergyman, a preacher, a a missionary. Yet he was unsaved. You might think, wow, if, if that doesn't get you in, what hope do I have? And the answer is none if you are likewise counting on your own religiosity to save you. And that was Wesley's problem. He was counting on himself, his own effort, for his right standing before God. Yet even after all he did, he knew it it wasn't enough. Because you can't be good enough for God. You can't be perfect. Nothing can save you. Nothing can reconcile you to God. Nothing can make you right with Him but Christ alone. Only by trusting in Him alone can He take away your sins and reconcile you to God and save you from the law of sin and death. And that's what Wesley finally realized. He was living under the law, even a Christian law, but he's still living under the law. What he really needed was grace. And the same thing happens all the time, even today. Many operate under a Christian law. They go through all the right motions. I mean, they go to church. 
But doing Christian things doesn't make you a Christian. And the real difference is in the heart. Does it belong to God or not? Does it trust in Christ alone or not? Many people like Wesley, they can be not far from the kingdom, but also not in the kingdom. They can go through all the right motions, but that's all they're doing. They're just going through the motions. But rather, a step of true, genuine, saving faith is required. And this brings us now to Mark chapter 12. For here, we actually encounter a similar situation. This is part of the same text that Wesley read that morning, the day of his salvation, that convicted him. And ironically, the situation in our passage is nearly the same. Mark 12, verses 28 through 34, we find this guy, this Jew. He's a very religious Jew. He's a scholar. He's a theologian. He knows his Old Testament really well. He's devout. He did all the right things. But we find he was merely close to the kingdom, to salvation, but not quite there. And as we watch him interact with Jesus, we come to find out what those people are like, what that, what that looks like for someone to be near the kingdom, not far from the kingdom, but not quite there. We also know, of course, that that's not enough. It's not enough to be close to the kingdom. You need to be in the kingdom. That's such a crucial distinction, and we come to find out what that looks like as well. You can't miss that distinction. You don't want to miss that distinction. This text in Mark 12 ends the series of challenges that have come against Jesus on this third day of his final week. Now, if you've been here the past few weeks, you've heard this a bunch of times. If not, we'll do that, the quick version recap. But in short, the various religious leaders of Israel, they know it's time to act on killing Jesus. He's chipped away at their power and their authority for long enough. And he's growing more and more popular with the people. And now this came to a head a few days prior where thousands of Jews acclaimed Jesus as the Messiah as he entered Jerusalem. And then the day after that, Jesus had the audacity to come into their temple and clean house as if he owned the place. And if this continued, the whole nation could be swayed to follow Jesus and not the Sanhedrin, and that's the governing body of Jews. So they've resolved they have to take him out. And this, really in brief, explains what we see take place on day three of this final week. It's the day after Jesus cleansed the temple. The Sanhedrin, which is composed of the high priests and the elders, who were mostly Sadducees, and scribes, who were mostly Pharisees, they come together, they unite to take out Jesus. And their goal is to try and trap him in some statement that will either discredit him among the people or villainize him among the Romans. Either way, it's going to help them in their task to just make sure Jesus is dead and gone by the end of the week. That's just what they want to see. Definitely before Passover. And so far in Mark 12, the past few weeks, we've seen the first two attempts of trapping Jesus. The first attempt was by a group of Pharisees and Herodians. They teamed up, but Jesus turned it back on them. They failed. The second attempt last week was by a group of Sadducees to trap Jesus, but they too failed. In both of those instances, we watched as Jesus, he answered their questions and refuted their objections. He put them in their place. Now we see a third and final formal confrontation, just this time by a lone scribe, just a one guy comes up to Jesus to test him. And this time it's a little different though. This third episode does not go quite like the previous two. And yes, of course, Jesus comes out on top. But the way he, he deals with his opponent is markedly different. And we want to find out what, what makes this different and what there is to see in this third and final formal confrontation. So get you up to speed. Why don't you turn to Mark 12 if you haven't already, and we're going to read through the passage beforehand, give you an overview. Mark 12, verses 28 through 34. Let's read those together now. Verse 28 says, One of the scribes came and heard them arguing, and recognizing that he had answered them well, asked him, What commandment is the foremost of all? Jesus answered, The foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The scribe said to him, Right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one. 
and there's no one else beside him, and to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. Now, I bet you've heard this before, at least those two greatest commands. Studying these alone is worth all of our time, but there's even more going on in this passage. This really is a a truly significant passage. So we're going to unpack it now and, and see what's really taking place in this third and final challenge. And trust me, it's worth your time. Because you don't want to be like Wesley was at first, someone who is not far from the kingdom, but also not in the kingdom. That's a distinction you can't afford to miss. We're going to find out what that's all about today. Well, by way of outline, let's begin with this. Number one, the final challenge. We'll start off by saying, number one, the final challenge. And that's what this is, formally, the final challenge. Verse 28, again, one of the scribes came and heard them arguing and recognizing that he had answered them well, asked him, what commandment is the foremost of all? Now first notice the connection to the previous event. This, This solitary scribe, he's been watching Jesus as he's battling opponent after opponent. They come and they get put in their place. First up to bat, the Pharisees, the Herodians, they try and trap Jesus, but he snaps the trap back on their fingers. And they're humiliated. Second up to bat, the Sadducees, they see the Pharisees humiliated, whom they hate, and they think now it's their turn to step up and make Jesus look bad and the Pharisees at the same time, so they're excited. But they too were defeated by Jesus. Specifically, Jesus slammed them on the issue of resurrection. The Sadducees denied a future bodily resurrection of the dead. And they tried to trap Jesus with a hypothetical conundrum, but Jesus exposed their ignorance and upheld the reality of the resurrection. And now it's right on the heels of of this exchange that this lone scribe steps up to take his turn at Jesus. But it's different. He doesn't appear to be quite as fierce as the other challengers. It doesn't seem to be any venom in his fangs as he lunges at Jesus. This man, he's a scribe. And being so, he, he believes in a future resurrection. So hearing Jesus uphold the resurrection actually pleases him. Jesus said the right thing in his eyes. He seems to have piqued his interest. He's still an opponent to Jesus, but as the passage progresses, he appears to be a genuine truth seeker. And he recognizes what Jesus seems to speak the truth. You, you never get that from a scribe. Now, backing up just a little bit, let me remind you who these scribes were. What's a scribe? Well, they were the guardians and the interpreters of the Jewish law, both Old Testament and what the rabbis said, their commentaries. You can almost think of these guys like prominent seminary professors, theologians. They held great sway over the people, given their intellectualism. They could always argue their case. And not surprisingly, they're elsewhere referred to as lawyers. They were the Jewish lawyers, the experts in the law of Moses, the Jewish law. It's no wonder then that this scribe comes up to Jesus with what kind of a question? A question about the law. And he asks him first, what commandment is the foremost of all? It's a question about the law. But once again, it's not a simple question. It's a challenge. And the parallel passage in Matthew 22 makes clear that this scribe was asking this to test Jesus. And you might wonder, well, how's that a test? Well, they're trying to test the orthodoxy of Jesus in regard to the Mosaic law, banking on the fact that Jesus would get it wrong. See, Jesus, he's always speaking based off of his own authority, right? I mean, he just did that back with the Sadducees. He went to and claimed his own authority in telling them what the resurrection was all like. He appealed to his own authority. And Jesus did this often. It's not like the scribes. They never did this. They never appealed to their own authority. They're always quoting some other rabbi to make their point. But they never just spoke for themselves. But Jesus did. Mark chapter 1, verse 22, you remember this? Jesus was teaching and, and the people, it says, 
They were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Jesus just spoke with a clear, personal, divine authority. And it appears that now these scribes, they're trying to use this fact against Jesus. So this one scribe, he asks a familiar question. What's the most important command? What's the, the top command? Just give me the number one. And this was something the scribes, the Pharisees, they debated this all the time. The Old Testament law had 613 commands. The rabbis knew that even they couldn't keep all these. That's too many. You can't keep all 613. So they continually sought to, to whittle them down, to reduce the list to like the most important ones, the doable ones. But here it, it appears they're counting on Jesus to answer off the cuff. They do not expect that Jesus, <clears throat> that Jesus will answer this question by appealing to the law of Moses to identify the greatest command. They expect that he's going to appeal to his own authority. But of course, in, no, in their mind, there's no greater authority than the law of Moses. So if Jesus, if he answers off the cuff, if he elevates himself above the law of Moses, then they're going to spin that into a charge of blasphemy. Anyway, that appears to be the setup here of this final challenge. But again, we don't detect the same malicious motive as we did with the previous scribes and the previous challengers. This scribe comes up to Jesus and he's, he's not chomping at the bit to, to take Jesus down. He seems to have a somewhat genuine question, although there is a trap involved. He just seems different. And we'll see that more as time goes on. But first, let's see next how Jesus responds to, to the question. What is the foremost command? And so we come to number two, the foremost commands. Number one, the final challenge. Number two, the foremost commands. And Jesus responds again starting in verse 29. Jesus answered, The foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And surely these words are familiar to you. Jesus gives us the two greatest commands, but he is not, in this case, appealing to his own authority. He doesn't need to because these commands are clearly found in God's law, the law of Moses scripture. And so Jesus quotes two passages from the Torah, the first five books. The first comes from Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 through 9. And among the Jews back then and still today, that passage in Deuteronomy 6 is one of, if not the most significant passage. The passage is known as the Shema in Hebrew, for the Hebrew word for hear. That's how it begins. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. It begins with a strict call that Israel has one God, that there is only one God. And the point is, you know, let it be known, Israel worships the one true God. The Shema is still said today at the beginning of Jewish synagogue services. It's still their defining creed. Notably, is the call to love God completely. Like Jesus quoted, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. This is a call to comprehensive love. Notice the fourfold repetition of all. All of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength. I'm not talking 99%. wants your entirety. These four terms, heart, soul, mind, and strength, they're meant to sum up the entirety of your being. And sure, you know, they have a slight nuance of meaning. You could spend a little time and, and talk about each one of these terms, but I think it's really missing the point. The point is just to show, to express, that you are to love God with the totality of your being. Everything that you are, everything that composes you, is to be given over to God in love. Now, we have other duties in life, other loves, like our spouse, our kids, and that's, that's okay. But a helpful way of thinking of this command is by what Jesus said elsewhere when he said, No one can serve two masters, for he will hate the one and love the other, 
or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You know, we always wonder that command, okay, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. What does that really mean? What does that really look like? This is a helpful way of thinking about it. Whom do you serve? Who is your master in life? Are you devoted to God? Does God rule your life? I think that's maybe the best way about thinking, of thinking about it. Does God rule your life? When Jesus said that other quote, it was first said in connection to money. You know, some people, money rules their life. God doesn't rule their life. Money does. It's what they live for. It's what they hope in. It's what they sacrifice for. It's what guides and directs their actions. Other people are ruled by pleasure. Some people's lives are ruled by material things. A few are ruled by good health. And the list goes on. But what rules your life? Loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength means that He rules your life. It's an all-consuming passion for God. Here's some questions. I want you to listen to this list. I'm going to ask you some questions. And just in your own heart of hearts, how do you fill in the blank? What, what's your answer to these? In life, what do you most adore? What do you sacrifice for? What do you focus on? What do you submit to? What do you seek after? What do you hope in? What do you serve? What do you give to? What do you speak about? What do you look for for peace and happiness? And what do you spend a great amount of time and money and energy on? And how do you fill in that blank? That's what you love. That's what you love above all else. What's your, what's your number one answer there? And you see the greatest command is telling us that God should be the answer to, to all those questions. He should be our all-consuming love. And for sure, such a comprehensive love for God is going to include obedience. It's not possible, although many people try, to love God and disobey God at the same time. No, but rather your obedience to God's will and to God's word. That's really your, your chief expression for your love for God. In fact, the Shema of Deuteronomy 6, it comes in the context of obedience. Love for God was given as their chief motivation for obeying God. And why should you obey God? Well, he says because, because you love God, because you should love God. It's no different for us. Like Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commands. It's pretty straightforward. If you claim to love God, but you hold out in some area of obedience, well, then you really aren't loving God with all your heart. And it may even call into question whether you really love God at all. You can see why this is the most important command. You can see why God would want you to focus on it all the time. In fact, the rest of the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, that's what it talks about. It prescribes just various ways to keep this this command to love God in the forefront of your mind all the time. Let me read it for you. Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 through 9, that the second portion of, of what's called the Shema. Right after the command to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, he continues in Deuteronomy 6, These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as a frontal on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. In other words, this, this command to love God is so important, you want to be reminded of it and thinking of it all the time, talking about it everywhere you go with your kids. Just the love of God should be our all-consuming passion. Now the Jews... They actually take that passage quite literally. You may know this if you've been to a Jewish person's house. On their right doorpost is a tiny little wooden box, and inside is a little piece of parchment inscribed with the Shema, Deuteronomy 6. It's called the mezuzah, because they're taking that literally. And also, if you've seen Jewish people pray, I used to see this on, on my college campus back in the day. They have these tiny little leather boxes and they wrap them around their hand and they wrap them around their forehead to pray. And inside the box is another little copy of the Shema. Because that's what it said. Bind them on your head, bind them on your hand as you pray. And in a sense, that that's good. They're trying to take Deuteronomy 6 seriously. 
But in another sense, it, it really misses the point and the function of God's law. I mean, look, this is the most important command, right? You all understand, I trust. There's nothing more important than loving God. To comprehensively love Him all the time. But, who does this? Who actually keeps that command? Perfectly. 24-7. You don't, you don't do that. I don't. I wish I did. I think we all would say we wish we did. But who really loves God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, all the time. No one. And we're sinners, and sometimes our heart, mind, soul, and strength are given over to other things. Not that it's meant to be troubling and convicting. Because look, what does it say about us if we can't even fulfill the number one command? Forget the rest. If you can't even do number one, what does that say about us? And it doesn't get much better when we add the number two command, which Jesus also adds, and he quotes now Leviticus 19, verse 18, where he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's interesting that Jesus felt the need to add a second command, and the scribe only asked him for one. But it just goes to show you that love for God and love for others, they're tied at the hip. You can't separate love for God and love for others. Like 1 John 4, 20-21 says, I think Rod read this. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have heard from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. You you can't separate love for God and love for others. So who's your brother? Who's your neighbor that you must love? Like we read this morning, the Good Samaritan parable, it expands the definition of neighbor to include pretty much everyone. Everyone's your neighbor. Jesus even included enemies in that list of those whom we are to love. And we are to show them love by giving ourselves. That's how we love. We give just us, our time, energy, money, just everything. Isn't that how Christ showed us love? As I also read, 1 John 3.16, we know love by this, that He laid down his life for us. And so we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. That's what we're being called to do. Just you're giving yourself, your life, whatever it is, for someone else. Showing them that love. And when you do this, when you deny self and you give yourself to others, you're loving them, but you're also loving God. Because you are reflecting the self-giving love of God. Now speaking of self... We already love ourselves enough. We all instinctively and and really in our fallenness, selfishly love ourselves. That's why it's so great and so convicting that Jesus says here we are to love others as we love ourselves. That's our standard. It's love other people as we love ourselves. That's not meant to promote the love of self even more, but just to show, why don't you try spreading that around to someone else as opposed to yourself. I mean, look, we all go way out of the way to benefit ourselves. To look out for number one. Just think about all the money you spend on yourself as opposed to other people. Think about all the time you spend doing the things that please you as opposed to serving others. Think about all the things that, that you do that benefit yourself. Now just apply that to other people and you know what it looks like. To love others as you love yourself. That's what we're talking about here. And that's what we're called to do. Philippians chapter 2 verse 4 says, Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. And again, do, do you do this? I think we all would say, well, we try. We want to. And we, we, we try to, right? Let's say you've got a fellow a believer, some of the church, a friend of yours. And they get an unexpected medical bill of $1,400. It's, it's totally more than they can bear. It's going to crush them. They can't pay. They're in real trouble. And the very next day you get in the mail your tax rebate check, and it's for exactly $1,400. And you had your heart set on a brand new HDTV and stuff like that. The question now is, what are you going to do? What would you do? Do you love your neighbor? 
It's, that's not easy. We, we say we try. We, I, I would want to do the right thing, but would you really? Would... Again, who does this? Who, who perfectly loves their neighbor all the time? No one. Aren't we all so guilty of instead loving ourselves, sometimes even at the expense of others? These are the two greatest commands, love God to love others. And although we aspire to them, where do we really measure up? I want you to hold on to that thought. Let that sink in as we'll be returning to it in a little bit. But Jesus says it like it is. It's very simple. The commands, they're simple. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. There are no other commandments greater than these. Now let's see how the scribe responds to what Jesus said. Jesus gives him the foremost commands, number two. Now we see the scribe actually responding well. Number three, the faithful confession. Number three, the faithful confession. This is is not expected given what the other challengers, how they respond to Jesus. But look at verse 32. The scribe said to him, Right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one and there is no one else beside him. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Really is surprising. This is the only instance where a scribe or Pharisee agrees with Jesus and, and says basically he's speaking the truth. Elsewhere, the scribes heard Jesus speak the truth, but they didn't want to give him any credit. But this scribe gives credit where credit is due. Jesus rightly pinned the foremost commands. If he was hostile to Jesus at first, he's not anymore. That seems to have melted away when Jesus got the answer so right. In fact, this scribe, he added his own insight while agreeing with Jesus. He added that heeding these two commands is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Of course, referring to the Jewish sacrificial system. He's not trying to repudiate the sacrificial system. He's just showing that when it comes to these matters of the heart, loving God is so much more important than rituals and ceremonies, sacrifices. Loving God matters above all else. And many Old Testament prophets said the same thing. For example, the prophet Samuel said in 1 Samuel 15:22, "Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better to sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams." You can offer God all the sacrifices you want, you can do all the rituals, all the ceremonies, but if your heart doesn't belong to God in love and in obedience, like, it doesn't mean anything. This scribe rightly understood God wants your heart first and foremost. Then all your religious practices will fall into place. But until then, they don't mean anything. Your sacrifices mean nothing if your heart is not God's. And this, all this does really is throw the spotlight back onto the two greatest commands. Do you realize that those two commands summarize the entire law? The whole law is summed up by those two simple commands. Jesus himself said that. In the parallel, Matthew 22, verse 40, he said, on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets, the whole Old Testament. And Paul agreed, Romans 13, verse 8, he said, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Take the Ten Commandments, for instance. You think about it, you spend a little time studying, you realize... The first four commandments are basically just other ways of saying, love God. And the last six commandments are basically just other ways of saying, love one another, love your neighbor. So if you just simply focus on loving God truly and loving others truly, you don't need the law. You have it right there. But it's not that simple. Because again, who can even keep just these two commandments? If that's all you had to worry about, if you didn't have, you know, the Old Testament law is 613 commandments. What if you just throw them all away and you just now have two? You just have two commands. Love God, love your neighbor. But even if that's the case, can you do that? 
Can you perfectly keep those commands? No, you can't. Who fulfills this law of love perfectly? No one. Just think about this question. In your mind, what's the most serious sin you can think of? What's the worst sin you can think of? I think a lot of people would say murder, idolatry. Some might say adultery or or thievery, thieving. But just think, if the greatest command is to love God and to love others, then wouldn't the greatest sin being just be violating the, the greatest command? Failing to love God? failing to love others, that, that's the greatest sin, isn't it? You see, we tend to think of ourselves sometimes as good because we don't do the really bad stuff. I don't, I don't murder, I don't, I don't steal things, I'm not that bad. But look, if you fail the top two commands, I mean, how good are you? How can you still think of yourselves as good if we break the most important laws? If God is not satisfied with anything less than our total, complete, comprehensive love for Him all the time, with all of our being, and love for others, we're in trouble because we don't measure up to that. And the Jews, and certainly the scribes, they were meant to realize this from the law. Whether you focus on all 613 commands or just just take the two, the top two, it's clear we fall short. It doesn't matter how short the list is. We're guilty. We break these laws all the time. And because of that, you know what we actually need? We need that sacrifice. We need a sacrifice. If we are to escape the penalty for failing to love God and others, we're going to need some substitute sacrifice to pay the penalty we we deserve for all the times we failed to love God and others. And that's actually the point of God's law, and even the sacrificial system to point us to God's ultimate sacrifice, the substitute, the Messiah, Christ Jesus, who came to die in our place, to bear all the guilt we incurred by failing to love God, by failing to love others, and that covers all of our sin. Every sin can fall into those two categories. You weren't loving God, you weren't loving others. Galatians 3.24 says the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. See, you, you can't be made right with God. You can't be justified by trying to keep the law, by doing good things, even by trying really hard to love other people. That's not going to justify you. The law only condemns us because we only end up breaking it. So instead, what do we really need? We need God's grace. We need God's mercy. We need God's forgiveness. We need God's love to come to save us from our sin. And that's precisely why he sent Jesus in love to come and to to save us, to be our sacrifice, to, to save us from the law of sin and death. And now because Jesus came and died and rose, you can be justified or made right with God. Not by your works, Not by your deeds, not even by your love for others. That doesn't justify you. You're justified now by just faith. Just faith in Christ alone. By resting in and counting on the work that Jesus did on the cross. That's it. That's it. Really, the greatest thing that can ever happen to a person is to be convicted of, of their sin. To look into the mirror of the law where they will behold themselves as they truly are fallen, lost, guilty. Because only then will you be able to see Jesus as he truly is, Lord, Redeemer, Savior. And the rest of the scribes and the Pharisees, they would have none of this. They don't buy this. They foolhardily prided themselves in their own efforts and deeds. They they didn't want to humble themselves like this. But here's this one scribe. And he's actually close. It's actually close to to finally getting the one thing necessary, which is faith. And Jesus sees this, and so Jesus, in a way, calls to him. Number four, the frank call. You see what I mean when he says this, this frank call, verse 34. When Jesus saw that he had answered him intelligently, he said to him, You 
are not far from the kingdom of God. This scribe was unlike the rest. He, he actually acknowledged the truth. He was honest. He wasn't going to lie just to oppose Jesus and deny the truth like all the other scribes would. He was humble. He actually admitted that Jesus, his opponent, got it right. He was bold. He's basically siding with Jesus and he's risking being ostracized by his fellow scribes because they still vehemently hated Jesus. But this guy couldn't deny the truth. He recognized the importance of the two greatest commands. He knew that that a heart of love for God matters way more than rituals or sacrifice. Because of this, Jesus said, he's not far from the kingdom, from salvation. This is both a compliment and a call. The scribe was commended for his insight. And here's a scribe who finally understood at least part of what God was trying to say in his law. Whereas so many other Jews acted as if they could pretty much do whatever they wanted. And as long as at the end of the day you do your sacrifice, you, you go through the rituals, your, God will accept you. But this guy understood that no, going through those motions, that, that's not okay. That's not going to make it okay. If your heart doesn't wholly belong to God. Still, though, as you can tell, there's a real difference from being not far from the kingdom and being in the kingdom, right? One final step needs to be taken. You see, you can't get into the kingdom while rejecting its king. You have to embrace him. You have to submit to him as Lord and Savior. And to do this really requires some humility. You have to come to the end of yourself. And that was the biggest problem for the scribes and the Pharisees. They were way too prideful for this. They didn't want to deny themselves. They loved themselves. In their heart of hearts, they really were living for themselves, not God. That was just a show. They were living for themselves. And accordingly, they relied on themselves, on self-effort. To make them right with God. In pride, they refused to acknowledge their depravity, that they fell short. They were good enough. And the ones who did recognize some of their faults, well, all that really mattered is, well, at least they're better than other people. God will accept them. But this doesn't fly with God. The kingdom of God is all about the king. But if your life is all about you, you're going to have no place in the kingdom. The only way in is by submitting to the king and following him. And to do that, like we've heard so many times, you must deny self. You have to deny self. God's law is actually meant to get you to that point. It shows you that you don't measure up. Even if you just have two commands, that simple law of love God, love others, shows us we don't even measure up to that. If you take those two commands seriously and you measure up against them, can you really say you're justified before God because you keep those perfectly? You can't. Nobody can't. If you rely on yourself, it's only going to get you one thing, and that's condemnation. But instead, our hope is outside of ourselves. Our hope is in Jesus, the King who died to buy us entrance into the king <clears throat> to the kingdom. And once you realize this, you'll have no problem bowing down, submitting to him. You'll happily deny yourself because you realize it's your sinful self, your selfish self that got you into this problem in the first place, that separated you from God in the first place. This scribe, he wasn't that far from the kingdom, from realizing this, but he still needed to behold his sin, to behold his failure to keep the law, and then to behold the Savior who is standing there right in front of him. And then he would be in the kingdom. What about you? Are you in by faith or are you still dancing around the kingdom? Still, maybe even secretly relying on yourself, on your own effort to get you in? What do you live for? Whom do you follow? The self or the Savior? So many people, I think, go through their lives deceived. 
They're near the kingdom. They're, they're not far, but they're not in. People can go to church their whole lives. It's just a ritual. They, they read their Bible. They pray. They take communion. They get baptized. Even study some theology. They live moral lives. They're faithful to their spouse. They raise their kids well. They're kind. They're honest. They're helpful. They, they serve. They give their time. They give their money to those in need. But they're still not in the kingdom. And how can this be? Everyone asks that question. How, how can that be? Well, the kicker is this. Are you counting on all those things to make you right before God and to bolster your goodness before God? If so, you're close, but you're not in. Or do you, in fact, recognize your serious lack of goodness before God and instead you just cling to Christ alone by faith for your right standing? All these things we Christians do, they have their place. But that place is not in earning anything before God. It earns you nothing. Rather, these things that we do, they're merely the new reflections of love that we have for the God who saved us. That's why we do all the things we do. Because we love the God who saved us simply by his grace through our faith in Christ. You know, thinking back to John Wesley, you know, his life didn't change a whole lot on the outside before and after his true conversion. Before his conversion, he was super devout on the outside. And after, he was still super devout. What changed? Well, there was an internal change where he was no longer relying on his self or all those things to justify him before God. He was now simply relying on Jesus alone and his work and his resurrection. And that makes all the difference. That makes all the difference. That is what separates those from being not far from the kingdom to being in the kingdom. And that's what transforms the Christian life from being a burden to being a joy. And before that point, for Wesley, his life, the Christian life was such a burden. All these things you have to do, praying, fasting, all that stuff, such a burden. But when you come to see Christ alone, it all becomes a joy. Because you realize what he's done for you. Have you taken that final step into the kingdom by faith? Well, this scribe, we don't know what happens to him. Nothing more is said. We never see him again. But there is one final word in the text, so let's finish with number five. The futile contest. Number five, the futile contest. Finishing verse 34, it says, After that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. Or as Luke 20:40 says, they did not have the courage to question him any longer about anything. Or as Matthew 22:46 says, no one dared from that day on to ask him another question. This occasion brings to an end the attempts by the religious leaders to trap Jesus in some statement it just doesn't work. Every time Jesus ends up burning them, they, they're humiliated. They're made to look like fools every time. So this tactic is not working, and they stop. Now you would think and hope that this would knock some sense into them. And maybe it's just time to just submit to Jesus. I mean, he clearly speaks the truth. But in pride, they would not have that. Their hearts were hardened, and they only wanted to kill him more. So from here on out, we see these religious leaders, they just bide their time looking for some opportunity to get Jesus in secret when they can take him out, out away from the crowds. And in God's providence, that's why the betrayal by Judas is such a big deal, because it gives them that, that final opportunity they were looking for to kill Jesus in secret. They arrest him in a few days, they put him through a mock trial, and they hurl false accusations at him. Why? Because he always spoke the truth. They never trapped him. They never got him in a statement. All they have are false accusations. But even still, this was part of God's plan. Even still, this was God's love. He was willingly handing over his son to death for us. And through that death, he would justify the many. It really is futile to oppose Jesus, though. He is the Lord. 
proven when he raised from the dead. That you just need to make sure you take that final step before it's too late. Make sure you're not just near the kingdom, but you're in by faith. Recognize him, submit to him, follow him, love him, and he will invite you in to the kingdom. Let's pray. Our God before us, we again begin by just remembering and, and contemplating your love for us. That, that's the starting point for all of this. How much love you have shown to us. We're your creation. You made us. And just by that nature alone, you have a love for us. Much like we love our own children, we know you love us as your, your precious creation, even made in your image. Yeah, how much we don't love you. We have to all confess, and I hope we do humbly, we don't love you as we should. We, we fail to love you with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And we fail to love others. We instead love ourselves to a fault. We, we sinfully promote ourselves over and against loving you and others, even to your hurt and to the hurt of others. That, that's, just, that's our sin. And through our sin, we, we certainly don't deserve your love, only your wrath, your condemnation, justly so, but your love prevailed even against that. And though we were lost and sinful and rebellious, you still sent your son Christ in in the greatest love of all. There's no greater love than this sacrifice to live for us, to die for us, to rise for us, that we'd be redeemed. Thank you, Lord. I just pray, these, these truths are familiar. I pray, even though we hear them every week, that they don't fall on deaf ears, that they continue to ignite our hearts every time. Because even still, we don't perfectly love you. But now we need to remember our true motivation for loving you and others. And that's simply Christ, our our Savior. He redeemed us. And now out of our love for him, how can we not love you and love others? Motivate us with this. Change our hearts. Invite us in. For any of those this morning who, who still find themselves counting on themselves, on their own deeds, on coming to church, doing the Christian things, if they count on that, to save them, convict them, open their eyes that that's not the way, that there's only one way and it is through Christ alone by faith. May they come to the end of themselves and see Jesus for who he is and behold him and follow him. And may you transform the Christian life for them from a, from a burden to a real joy. For that's what it is. It is our joy to serve you. And we look forward to doing that forever. Bless us as we leave for now. May we go from here resolved anew to love you and to love others. The God who loved us so much. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.